when I started this thing, I had no idea how many counters there would be. <laughs> and when we came last year and did a basic count, it's 23,000 and change, which is <laughs> pretty wild. That's great. 23,000 units. But it's, you know, a lot of it is not unit units. A lot of it is markers. Hey gang, it's Harold, and here is another podcast. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with game designer Chris Fasulo. We discuss his company, Grognard Simulations, and his work on the largest historical simulations available. Thanks for listening. Chris graduated from Ramapo College of New Jersey with a bachelor's degree in history. The New Jersey National Guard required it in order for Chris to keep his commission. In 1991, just as the Gulf War was starting, he was transferred from his posting in a tank battalion to the Training and Training Technology Battle Lab. There he spent the next seven years wargaming for the New Jersey Guard running command post exercises for battalion and brigade headquarters. He was offered a job as a systems engineer at Raytheon to further develop the simulation to better serve the headquarters that use the simulation to train. For 23 years, he's had the perfect job and loved it. In 2009, he decided to start his own game company and design his own games. After shopping his own designs, looking for a publisher, and not getting much traction, he decided to publish his own. We'll start this interview with a question about the origins of Grognard Simulations. It, it is pretty specific, and, uh, you know, I, it's always been a topic that simply is something I enjoy. Um, my wargaming background, besides starting when I was a teenager, really morphed when I went into the military. And that's where I got a whole lot of experience in terms of running command post exercises. And command post exercises are really just high-powered military war games. You get to plan a battle, create the battle put the scenario together for somebody, get in there and command one of the sides, me, it was threat, and so, uh, and then you fight the battle. Afterwards, you get up there and talk to everybody about what you did and how the battle went from your perspective. Um, and there, it's truly one of these fog of war situations. That's probably the best thing that you get to do in that situation is you have real fog of war because the computer does a lot to, I guess, uh, make the decisions about who sees who when, when fire occurs between those two forces based on some rules. And so you will only see a very small fraction of all the troops that are out there at any given time. You never know or see a big giant blob of units. You see nothing but the things that you have line of sight to, and you got to put a picture together. And and I, you know, I hope in some way I can try to do that better in a board game. We have a long way to go for that. That's a tough one. Fog of War is the biggest single reality that we really struggled to, to communicate, I think. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the Death Ride series that, that I've been working on now for the last nine years, uh, I tried to put this intelligence slash, you know, uh, Fog of War stuff in there. And for the moment, all I can really do is model some special unit capabilities. You know, you need engineers to do certain types of functions or reconnaissance units to do certain kinds of functions 
whether it's scouting, uh, minefields or wire obstacles. And so that's a big part of what they do. I've also put in there signal units because you can have, uh, you know, intercepts, right? That's a part of the intelligence uh, stuff that we do. And of course, in the computer side, in the military, there's more that can be seen, but you've actually got to build a real picture. You get maybe a blank map with what you think is out there, and then you have to post the locations. And I really do want to get some place where we can, as hobbyists, say, hey, I want to be able to try and build that intel picture. What's really out there? How can I see the battlefield with those limited eyeballs? That's just really cool from my perspective. Where, where did the idea for Grognard simulations come from? So the company was created in 97, 1997. And uh, I began working for uh, Raytheon uh, Defense Company back in the, I guess, 93. And I had seen computer programmers because the thing that I worked on was a computer simulation, a war game. And I said, I don't have those skills, but I know people now who have those skills. And what I'd like to do is create a computer war game, but I'll get some people to help me. And there were gamers in the work group that I worked with. There was about a half a dozen people. And ultimately, I created the corporation to start a project. Um, believe it or not, it was Labatai that I decided to go ahead and make a computer simulation of. Boy, was that that was really not a very good first choice for the simple reason that Labatai's got, you know, a pretty big rule set in itself. It's not always as clear as one would like, but I chose a set of rules. It was uh, the, the Regs 22 and built our rules off of that. And I got a playable play-by-email version of the game, but because I don't have an AI... Um, it, it languished and is now kind of dormant, very dormant. So Grognard okay, came from the fact that I really enjoyed Napoleonics. That's where I got that from. But um, Death Ride was birthed in 2010 for the simple reason that since I wasn't going to be able to finish a computer war game, I would have to go the route of the traditional cardboard and rules, paper rules. And that's what I did. I said, you know, this is where I'm going to go because this is what I can do by myself. I don't need anybody. I don't have to worry about uh, a lot of stuff that I don't have the knowledge to address. And now I just have to go about figuring out how to produce the thing. Initially, I tried to shop it out to a few publishers and I got you know, like many people do, knows or non-interest. And I said, hey, you know what? I'm a guy who's in the military and improvise, adapt, and overcome. And I said, okay, well, hey, I'm just going to publish it myself. And that was it. I went out and found the ways to produce the things I needed for components, and off I went. Did Death Ride start with the grand scale that's one of the more interesting things about your system is that it's it it's, can be when it's assembled and its components huge. So the first games I made were single map sheet games, Pacific Island stuff, and I was okay with that. But the next set that I went to right away was uh, the 48th Panzer Corps. And so when I designed that, I designed it from the whole versus an individual piece and then say, oh, that's a success. Let's move to here and to there. I went ahead and said, let me see what the whole 48th Panzer Corps looks like. And I put together a plan that to break up the maps and the orders of battle and that kind of stuff. And then I went and designed Gross Deutschland. So Gross Deutschland was the first in that series. And then once I uh, began the design there, I simply said, okay, you know what? This is too small for me. And so 
I went ahead and designed the remainder of that entire footprint that um, I had at the convention last year. So that then included the uh, second SS Panzer Corps to their right, and to their right, the, the third Panzer Corps and Army Detachment Kempf. So yeah, so I, in all the big games that I have, the Napoleonics, like with Austerlitz, uh, the Hundred Days, uh, this new Normandy uh, title set that I am putting together. So I saw some prototypes set up. The here. design is from the biggest. What's the grand scheme? And then I go about breaking it up into smaller bite-size pieces and then design each of those. And then they fit together really well. Like those maps, they come together really, really well because they're designed from the top, I guess, down. Now, when when you made the the scale decision, you had also made the size size of the unit, hex size, all of those decisions as well, right? Right. And 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 that's a fairly detailed decision too, given the scope of the big map. Right. So ultimately, uh, I was a fan of Panzer Blitz. I think like many people were back in the day. But what really uh, left a hole for me was the fact that. The maps were those geomorphic things, you know, you fit them together in a few combinations and that was the base of what you had to work with. But I liked the concept of the unit information and that kind of stuff. So I built a little bit more information into the units, the secondary weapons versus primary weapons. And I said, okay, what I really want to see is real terrain. I want an operation based game. And so I put it inside something that interested me, which was Kursk. And that's kind of how I first determined what what I'm going to put together. And then as far as a scale goes, I say, okay, what kind of force am I looking for in a hex? In my case, it's two companies. And what are they normally going to be deployed in? And it kind of depends on the operation. But 330 meters works pretty good for this scale. And so that's what I stuck with. So how do you, what, how do you come to that literal 330 decision? Is there, so is in there reality, a it was a one kilometer kind of a decision. And 333 is just an ugly number. And so I picked, <laughs> you know, 330 meters. Gotcha. And, you know, the map guy who did a lot of the design for at least the Kursk map was uh, Rick Barber. And so Rick Barber went out, and I don't know how he actually scales things, but he's got a light table, and he takes map sheets and blows them up to whatever the right size is, and poof, he puts his stuff down on sketches. Well known for his hand-drawn maps, right? Yeah, well, I didn't use Rick for his final art for Kursk. I had a uh, a younger guy who's a um, who's a son of a friend of mine who's in the military also, and and he's a I'll call him a budding artist of sorts, you know. And I let him do the final art. So our map is uh, muted to a sense, but what really pops out of all the things is the elevation. So if you put that whole map together in one place and you look at it from a distance, you can really see the high and low places in that whole area. And it gives you a much better idea of the movement corridors or important high ground, you know, things that we like to think about as as gamers and tacticians, you know, for how you're going to move around and fight the battle. So you said two companies perhaps. Yeah. But the company size is more detailed than company, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's platoons is really, for the Germans, the base unit. And then I have the ability to build them up into companies. So if you want to run around with less counters on the map, you can. Um, And the combat still goes on at the platoon level. So you might have three tank platoons that are in a company counter, but it's moving across the map, and instead of you having to shoot at a whole company, which is not very manageable or worthwhile doing, 
you go ahead and you fire at one of the platoons in there, which is much more reasonable, and then you can do something. So yeah, that's how that works out. So so now we're talking about platoon level units mm-hmm. and the grand combined theater would be that around Kursk. Yeah. So ultimately when I started this thing, I had no idea how many counters there would be. <laughs> and when we came last year and did a basic count, it's 23,000 and change, which is... <laughs> pretty wild that's great 23,000 unit but it's you know a lot of it is not unit units a lot of it is markers there's a lot of markers in my games um for me to make a small low counter density game is i don't i have one or two but it's very hard i like to make sure that people have something to put on a uh, a unit or a stack of units it tells you what's going on well, you measure a lot of different things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And suppression's probably the biggest one, you know. So that's the way I handle most of my results is through suppressions. So we have one kilometer per hex. 330. Pl- 330 30 meters per hex. 30 meters per hex. And we have platoon level counters. And then we go, how, how wide is this map when it's combined? I mean, what's the, what's the length and breadth? So the total footprint that we got measured last year by a licensed surveyor <laughs> was 130 square feet. So that's a lot of table space. Wow. And when we put, to, put it together last year, uh, got some pictures of it on my website, but... Um, it's it's really big. So you can't get to the center of the table right normally. Right. And thankfully, there's three cores that are fairly autonomous. And so we had table breaks. And you put the table breaks where the core boundaries are. And you then can fight the battle in a more comfortable setting. So that's how we handle that. But you're talking about uh, one, two, three, four, five, six times 22 inches, which is about 120 something inches, almost basically 10 feet across, and probably 10 feet, uh, more than 10 feet uh, top to bottom, especially over in the Kempf area. So yeah, it's it's really big. It was an amazing sight. Yeah. To see all those guys playing. And, and I'll tell map. you, uh, Robert Wiebe is the guy who created the map for me last year, the one that we used at the convention. So he has this one-off map that is uh, all of the sheets are, are pasted on some kind of tile board. And they have little notches, right, where they would fit together. I guess, uh, what do you call it? Some kind of groove something. And there's magnets, so if you get the two pieces close to each other, they suck themselves right in. What a great idea. And that way, if you need to pull off a quarter of a map sheet or something, you just pull those tiles out and you can morph the board into a shape that fits your table space. Uh, so he did that really nice. And then this Normandy map that we've got is already 12 sheets across. And that's not quite covering the whole... Um, Sword to, uh, well, I want to say uh, the end of the, the, the very western part of the Cotentin Peninsula. But that's, uh, you know, that's more than 10 feet. It's about 11 feet across at the moment. And it's also going to be um, much deeper. And he and I have been tossing around how far we want to go. You know, do we want a cobra you know, duration type of thing where there's like, I don't know, there'd be maybe four or five, six rows of map sheets by 10 across wow. in total, wow. which would be really big. But this Normandy map is already almost the size of the Kursk map in total. And I'm pretty sure that by next year, it'll be bigger. Depending on how deep you decide to go. Yeah, yeah. So... um my plan is that this year we're playing Utah and gold. And um, next year I want to have the whole, the whole beach area across for the sixth. So 
from the airborne guys on the east to the airborne guys in the west. And there can be plenty of divisions out there, but that'd be a really, really beautiful sight to see. It would be terrific. Yeah. What about time frame? What's the time frame of a turn, and how did you come to that conclusion? Two hours. So most turns are two hours. Um, and two hours is, uh, I don't know, I guess just one of these things that allows for a lot of interaction. Um, yes, tactical but again, operational. And I think me trying to combine those two things together uh, said, you know what, two-hour turns will be about the right number uh, or around the right size or length in terms of modeling perspective. And then a day, a battle day, is 10 turns because nights are a little longer. So there's two night turns and eight daytime turns in a day. And that that works really well for uh, Kursk. Here, for these, this amphibious thing for Normandy, I have taken the and made these invasion turns, which are only 40 minutes in duration. So three 40-minute turns is one two-hour turn. And the intensity of what goes on in those turns is greater because... It was greater. The battle was really ferocious in those early hours of Normandy. And so um, that helps to kind of make things go a little bit more normal. You know, you get a little bit more stuff that goes on with the actual landing craft that come in with the beach bombardment um, and those kind of things. So I've reduced the movement. Yeah, let's just say that you could move four, uh, four hexes or something. In here, now you can only move maybe one or two hexes, depending on what you're moving in. And so that kind of helps the scale that way. But it's, uh, it works out really well. And it seems to be tracking very well in terms of the, you know, historical versus game type stuff. Schedule, yes. yeah. Yeah. What about um, when, when, you, when you talk about movement allowance for units how do you think about uh you know, you've got two hours you've got your map scale how, how do you then convert a unit's speed or its ability to move into a movement factor you know that's uh data everything is data so in the computer war game days uh it's all about data in these board games it's also about data and one of the things that I learned while I was creating scenarios in a CPX, command post exercise, is that just because uh, the data says X doesn't mean that from a combat and operational perspective that that's what is actually happening. Because your raw data is something that is out of a textbook. It's... It's not in front of the enemy. It's not in contact with people. It's not operating in that manner. And so you kind of look at what's raw first. You know, something can move 60 kilometers per hour. Okay, so let's gives see. You a cap. Yeah, that gives you a real cap, and maybe that's a strategic movement thing. And since it's not a strategic game, I don't worry about that kind of movement. And then I go ahead and I just think back to my days as an armor, you know, guy. And I say, okay, look, you know, from a tactical perspective, we are maybe moving 10, 15 kilometers per hour. And that's even without, that's light contact at best. Okay. And so that's going to be your movement rate. And that's what I kind of plug into here. And then you say, okay, when you're in contact, you're going to really be moving a lot less. Even combat ranges, right? So you know some tank maybe can shoot 3,000 meters or 2,000 meters. Optimal. That's the optimal number. But when you start reading about engagements, you know, from people who are actually there or something, you find out that long range might be 1,000 meters. That's long range. A lot of things are going on shorter than that because line of sight wasn't there or... Something was in the way in terms of some odd terrain and the units suddenly come, you know, they, they come face to face and they're really not that far away at all. So, yeah, that's 
that's what you have to kind of do. But I use optimal numbers for the most part for um, combat ranges. Movement, I temper the units a lot because otherwise they would have these incredible movement rates and be just flying. <laughs> and it, and working at the platoon level, then you can get very granular as to the weapons, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I model both a primary and a secondary. And for infantry, there's usually some small arms, rifles, and then the primary weapon is your machine guns, you know. And that's a, a standard infantry platoon. You talk about the mortar platoon uh, that runs along with the company. Well, now you have the rifles that are the small arms, but you also have mortars of, of various calibers, and so, you know, you put those ranges in and those ranges help you to, you know, determine where they can fire and support from for the company. And, and as you work your way up an organization, right, you may have 81 millimeter mortars at a company and at the battalion, you got 120 millimeter mortars. And as you work into the division artillery, you got 105 millimeter guns and 155 millimeter guns and... And so that's how you kind of see a layered effect for fire support. Right. And at that level, you can see the design that the, that the oh, military yeah. applied at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the thing. You know, my game's built in some ways as a copy of a command post exercise. You try to say, okay, look, you have these different elements of a big organization. How do you use them to best prepare and beat the other guy, whatever that is, whatever side you're going to play, you know? And so you have to kind of study those individual pieces and say, okay, I got these things that shoot 50 hexes. I guess that's artillery. And, you know, where do you position them? So I even gave out some sort of crib notes to, to people at one time to say, hey, you know, typical deployment, for certain types of operations, you got this one-third, two-third rule. Uh, you know, if you're in the defense, you you want to be two-thirds back from the front, okay, so that you can hit the enemy as they are outside your lines, and then you don't have to move as they're moving forward until much later. And the opposite for an attack. You want to be one-third back from your front line, so you have two-thirds in front of your front line before you have to move. And this game really does force you to think, you know, can I, if I've got nine batteries to use, how many can I keep firing while other ones are moving to get into a new position? And the fact that you need to tell people that means that the game nicely implements that, right? And yeah. also provides a place where, where people that are students of the topic can test it. Right? Yeah. What about this? What if I did this instead? And how does that change things? And so uh, the rules that I've written for this series are all based on my old experience with the battlefield operating systems, you know, the, the seven battlefield operating systems. And that list changes over time as things, you know, um, morph in military technology and stuff. But these seven are the, the sort of main basic components of how you go about planning. You know, maneuver, fire support, uh, logistics, you know, combat service support. Those are the pieces that go into your planning and battle. Air defense, right? Intelligence, as I mentioned earlier. And I try to make sure that there's some element of those things in, in the game system. And you don't have to play them all. Right, a lot of there's a lot of optional stuff in there, so you open it up, you work on the basics. You know, there's four levels of of rules that are in there, and if you just want to play the basic stuff and worry about fighting and moving around, great. If you want to get into planning your air campaign and figuring out how many sorties you have in the different hours and writing down the numbers of fighters and bombers that are come over the battlefield at each hour. You can do that too. <laughs> and that's what we do here at the convention. And we have a blast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, uh, it's fun to watch you guys. I'm intimidated by the size, but someday I'll, I played Libatai last year. Mm -hmm. 
that was a treat and something I'd always wanted to do. So maybe someday I'll, I'll join you and your crew. Uh, w- one last question about um, about Death Ride Kursk. So, so if an individual was interested in the series, I know there are a number of components. I have two of them, but uh, what what are the different components that someone could purchase within that that would then yield the monster game? So there are a total of uh, eight main games and three enhancement packages. And the eight games are, are modeled basically on uh, a division-level front for the 48th Panzer Corps and the 2nd SS Corps. Uh, I create base games for each of the core area. So if you want to buy or focus on the 48th Panzer Corps, you buy Gross Deutschland. That's the first. And then from there, if you want to move into 11th Panzer or 3rd Panzer, which was on their flanks, then you buy those uh, to, to fill out uh, that core. And the enhancement package, which is the 48th Panzer Corps enhancement package, and that provides maintenance, logistics, and uh, air components. For the 2nd SS, Totenkopf is the base game. And then there's a Liebstand Dart expansion and a Das Reich expansion and a 2nd SS Panzer Corps expansion. For the Army Detachment Kempf area, it was a little bit different because I could not break those up into single division components. So I took the whole 3rd Panzer Corps and put them in one box. I'm sorry two boxes <laughs> and core rouse is in another box and the enhancement package is in uh, a stiff envelope and so that's kind of how you would buy them if you wanted to if you like third panzer core and you don't want to worry about the other pieces you buy the third panzer core game that one alone is really big but you get sixth panzer seventh panzer 19th panzer the 168th Infantry Division, and all of the myriad of Russians that are out there that oppose them. That's a big one on its own. If you kind of want one that's less imposing to start with, the best one's probably Gross Deutschland. Are you, you feel like you're finished with that series? I am pretty complete with that series, yeah. So last year we put together a massive collection of the whole thing that I call the, you know, uh, Southern Front Rusland Staff Limited Edition. And that staff piece is kind of a throwback from my command post exercise staff training days. Um, And that has everything in it. And it comes in an ammo crate. Homemade, by the way. (laughs) Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that's a really awesome thing to be able to say... I have one of these in my collection. <laughs> Do you? But it's not, you know, it's not inexpensive, but it is, uh, it's unique. You know, it really is unique. And it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, it's it's also each individual game. I mean, you, the, right. op, the, the play options from a small scale to a huge scale are just right. incredible. That's yeah. right. And so, yeah, I mean, from that perspective, I now am, you know, I'll be doing little cleanup things, uh, updates perhaps on some of those items. But for the most part, it is now a to-bed product or set of products. Right. So the next product then is, uh, is D-Day. Yeah, that's the next big product. Um, this TT thing that I talked about earlier is also probably close to, I'd say within maybe a year, year and a half or something of coming online as, as something to be uh, purchased and pretty cool. But the next really big death ride project is Normandy. And it is, it's moving fairly faster than anything I've done before. Yeah, I mean... Um, when I first got into Raytheon in Orlando, just back in uh, 2013, I talked with a guy who wanted to make Aras. So Death Ride Aras was Genesis in 2013. I only released it last year because it took a really long time to get the things rolling. The map was a big 
you know, sort of sticking point. And design can sometimes take a lot longer than you would like. I was working on Kursk, you know, and the other projects that I have. And so it just did not get the kind of focus I would like to do. Normandy, on the other hand, is now hyper-focused. And so uh, last year we talked about starting it in the, at the, this convention, playing Kursk. Someone jokingly put up a map on our cork board that had Normandy and say next death ride with an arrow on it. <laughs> I was like, oh, guys, please, please stop. <laughs> and ultimately, um, I talked about it with uh, Robert Wiebe over the following months and by January, we were, you know what? Let's go. Let's do it. And from then until now, got a load of work done. Units for the convention, the, the map sheets that you saw that are out there. I mean, uh, that's his first map. And he, he has just blown through those sheets, 24 sheets now, like, um, like I can't believe. I mean... Five months, that's a lot of work. And he went through it really fast. I went through with units and the tables and kind of the um, translation of my amphibious model from Tarawa into this. So I had all that stuff for Tarawa. And I'm, and I'm, Tarawa's out here too at the convention floor. Uh, I'll have both of them. And so we're, you know, TAR was going to get released sometime around Thanksgiving. And then this, I think probably I'll have something ready for Omaha at, at, by the next convention. That's my hope. And that'll be fast you, for you, me. You got to figure that you're through a learning curve to some extent, right? That you're, you're, you're becoming much more efficient. At, at... Mm, I'd like to say that, <laughs> but in reality, the answer is no. So... The things that I did to find out how to produce stuff, 10 years ago, I had those answers. So from that perspective, there's no learning curve. I know how to get things printed. I know how to get stuff die cut. Okay, it all becomes just a real, I don't know, uh, the grinding kind of work. Putting rules down on paper that for whatever reason are different than, you know, something you might have in place already. But we're, we're going to be taking the curse rules and playing with them with the amphibious additional rules uh, kind of appended to them. And then what I'll do later on is I'll start to strip out the pieces that don't fit, you know, don't belong in Normandy, and we'll have a set of new Normandy, Death Ride Normandy Master Rules. I would assume that the other part of it is you, you're getting some help. I'm mostly a one-man band. <laughs> Obviously, I've talked about Robert helping with maps. So that's not something I have done at all. I've been trying to slowly make, you know, get myself to do a little map design work. Uh, and I've worked with maps all my life. But in reality, it's taking me much longer than I'd like. And the primary reason for that is I'm busy, too busy with design for the games, you know, in terms of the modeling, the units, and all that kind of stuff. So it just isn't high on my priority list to learn. So I've left that to other people. And Robert's also a guy who has done a whole lot of my chart designs, for, for Kursk especially. So that's the help I get. Oh, I got a little other help that I need to mention uh, the master set of rules that I have now for Kursk were Mark Hershey's uh, brainchild. A long time ago, he wanted to, because he loved the series, and he was a huge, huge help in me putting all the rules together uh, and creating that master rule set in the first place. Um, and that really has worked out a lot better. They're much cleaner, much more understandable for people than they were back when I first did them in 2010. You see that too with uh, Phil Eklund and his games. He's not known as the best rules writer, <clears throat> but you'll see his, his uh, loyal followers who love his games and fight to understand how they work right. will rewrite the rules. And then when Phil does another printing, oftentimes he'll adopt 
the rule set that the fans created, uh, which are which are interestingly enough better. Yeah, I gotta say that um, you know rules writing, any kind of writing, can be difficult for a writer to allow other people to critique. People get personal; they think it's some an extension of them. And if you say something that is not so nice about that writing, they get hurt. I am not a person who has any, it's electrons, okay? And my goal is really that my players and customers understand what I have put together. And some people can say things in a better way, help, helpful, more helpful to understanding than me. And if that's the case, I say, Whatever words you think fit best, we put them in place. That's it. You know, I'm not hung up on, on me being the know-all and, and be-all of this. The game is not me. Okay, The game is really a collection of thoughts about playtesters and people who are playing the game. Obviously, me a lot because I put it together in the first place. But if someone has suggestions, I say, you know what, you... Take a look at what their idea is. You evaluate whether or not it has some merit or value to incorporating. And if it does, you figure out a way to put it in. If it doesn't, okay, then that's fine. But because we have a kernel of engineers who helped a lot with the obstacles, right, in Kursk. So I had some obstacles initially, and, and he came in and started playing with us a few years ago. He says, hey, listen, I it would take a lot longer to build these kinds of things. And I say, okay, so tell me what the numbers are and we'll, I'll make some adjustment. And so now there's actually two sets of obstacle counters in the game. Ones that were the original ones that I made and a set that are based on the numbers that he put together. And you can use either set. But that's a big deal. And that's a customer input, right? Who said, hey, this is a place you could do something more realistic. And that's what we did. It's a, it's a gift having people that are serious about your game and interested and understand it as well as you do and strive to figure out those details. So I, I couldn't agree more that, uh, that it really, there's a huge benefit. Now, it brings me to, to, to the last issue I wanted to talk about in the context of, of, of Death Ride in particular. We, we talked about my friend Mark Guerra, who is, you know, I, I don't know what you're company colors are but if they were blue he would bleed grognard blue he mm -hmm. loves your games and everything about them uh a, a, a great old school war gamer and uh, passionate about it but he's he's one of of many right i mean given the niche that we're all in there's a large group of people that are serious about your games and what you do and i, I know that feels great but it, it's cool to watch here i wondered your perspective on that well um Playing here is has been really fulfilling because the, the group that we have is now more than just a group of people who play. So we got actually got together uh, in California over the holidays um, to play some other stuff just because we all wanted to spend more time together. And so this group is now, you know, I think we're in the friends category, true friends. And that's the kind of thing that some of this does to to you when you do it. And let's face it, I mean, I think that we've all done this in some regard because we we like to be part of a community of people that have like interest. And so you come out here because how many of us have a, a play person that's that close? Not that many of us. And so you come here and you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter how big, as is attested to by our Death Ride Kursky game, taking up, you know, a lot of floor space here. <laughs> and if you have the people, you play, you know. Now, the, the folks who like my Death Ride system, I, I don't know really how many. It's probably a hard core of people who, who are that way. But as a company, I'm not setting any records on fire in terms of sales my numbers are really 
I, I consider them small, probably by GMT standards or something. Or Wizards of the Coast or whatever. Yeah, I have no P system or anything like that for the simple reason that if I went and said, you know, set a number of some kind and waited for enough people to sign up, I would not have any produced games, okay? So my thing has always been I produce what I want when I want. That's one of the benefits of being your own publisher, okay? And so uh, I know that there's a group of people out there that when I say game is ready, will come on board, and these days I simply say I'm opening up a pre-pub period of time, a couple months, get on board and you'll get the pre-pub price. Uh, and then I make a, a run. When that run is done, I make more games. So I'm one of those on-demand publishers. Um, and that helps me from the perspective of being able to say that things don't go out of print, right? And that's kind of nice. And as stores will order more, because there's a few places out there that will carry my things, they order, you know, two, three, whatever copies of stuff, and it'll keep going out on a continual basis. And so the community's growing slowly but surely. It's a word of mouth thing, I think. Like people like Mark, right? You know, and he's out there spreading the word, him and Vince Jourdain. Um, Other oh, missionaries. Yeah, and Vince actually, I found out, lives uh, 30, 40 minutes from me. So I now have a face-to-face -face, uh, opponent that I can play with on a fairly regular basis. And then there's my own son, Vinny. Um, and so we also do a bunch of uh, playtesting. And so that's working pretty good. But yeah, guys like Mark uh, Ruggiero, uh, I hope that's right, but... You know, you love to have people like that. Robert Wiebe is another guy who, when he, he was an OCS player, loved OCS. I used to see him at this convention all the time in the OCS tables. And then one day he snuck over by me, <laughs> and that was the last he was over there. He's been over uh, on my table now uh, for a long time, for I guess about the last five or six years. And once you get hooked... I don't know. Maybe it is a disease. What do I know? I certainly enjoy it. We all we all have it in general, right? Yeah. With the games anyway. So then you find a system that you love and you just want more of it. So Yeah. And I don't remember. I think it was um, Frank Chadwick that I... One year I brought Austerlitz here. And so, you know, you talk to a guy like that and you say, uh, So, Frank, how many Austerlitz games or D-Day games or... Any other games is enough in the from a design perspective to see in the hobby. This is it. There's no number. You know, everyone's got their own interpretation of what they think is important to see in a game for that particular battle. And I think that's why we buy multiples of all these different titles because we want to see what someone, some other designer's approach is, and what's important to them. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so let me close with a handful of questions. Um, first of all, you talked about your military service. Could you talk about that a little more? You were in the Army? Yeah, I enlisted in 77 in the active Army, and I was an artillery uh, fire direction specialist. So I definitely know something about um, fire support and artillery and how we operate that way. And my rough, very rough duty was in Hawaii with the 25th Infantry Division. It was absolutely dreadful, <laughs> dreadful, dreadful, having to, you know, finish my day, and within 20 minutes, if you wanted to, you could go to the North Shore and hit the beach. Ooh. But I only stayed there for three years, and I ended up getting out and getting into the National Guard in New Jersey. And for whatever reason, they had no... Uh, well... The, the guard folks there saw a very strack trooper in me, were really impressed with the way I operated. And someone one day said, hey, you want to be an officer? And I said, yeah, sure, but I have no college. <laughs> and they said, hey, in this state, you don't need a degree. And I went to OCS and got my commission. Uh, and after that, 
about two years after I got my commission, they said, you need to get a degree, finally. And so I went back to school and, and did a bunch of stuff and got a degree in history. But during my time as a guardsman, I was in a tank battalion, so I got to understand maneuver warfare a lot better. Um, played some computer war games as a company commander, understood some of the staff operation that went on, and then got into a unit that did command post exercises for battalion, brigade, division level staffs. And that probably was the, I mean, that was a real awakening in terms of how wargaming fit into real life. So when you talk about living the dream, uh, honestly, that uh, the job was designing scenarios and fighting war games against real military people a few times a month. My gosh. And they paid <laughs> me to do that. That was awesome. And, and ultimately, that experience got me the, a job in Raytheon working on the simulation that is the battle creator. And there, I was the expert on how the thing produces information to help the staff. And I got to do the same thing. And so for the last 25 years, you know, I never hated going to work. I love going to work. And now I'm retired which is better because now I can focus more time on designing games. On more work. Yeah. Yeah. And I am busy. <laughs> right. I am oh, not, not busy. I feel as busy as ever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you may be the hardest working man in, in, in war games. But, you know, your, your perspective on how the military works and shows up in your designs. And, and I, you know, the one, place, the one other place that I see this is Mark Herman and his modern designs. That are that with some complexity, he he does the same thing you do. He thinks about it and organizes it the way the military organizes it, right? And and I think that's a, f a fascinating uh, perspective for a war gamer. So I want to thank you for that, and of course, thank you for your service. You're welcome. A, a couple of additional closing questions. What do you, what do you read? Do you have time to read? <laughs> so when I get into these big projects, like this Normandy stuff that I'm doing now, of course, you go looking for as many books and, and websites uh, for U.S. Army history uh, and, and titles specific to these particular events. And so uh, I always have a reading list, and I was always a big reader. So for me, uh, like in Kursk, okay, I don't know if you've ever seen this giant Christopher Lawrence book but it's about i don't know six inches thick okay <laughs> and it is it's probably the most detailed thing i've ever seen on the whole southern part of the battle but that's a resource now have i read every page of it no but i've gone through because i got it when i was working on third panzer corps and tried to use as much of that material uh, and a, a whole litany of, of other assets, the gents' books on Panzertruppen, which kind of detail the numbers of tanks and the structure of panzer regiments and things like that. So that's the kind of information that I look for in terms of reading, and I'm always trying to get some new perspective. And I don't mean new history, but... Uh, kind of see what people are writing about and try to put it into the scope of what I need for my game. Battle, uh, my goodness, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, Joe Balkoski. I have a book by him on D-Day, okay? And it's a combination of his narrative wrapped around a bunch of personal uh, accounts that were written very close to D-Day. Well, that book is awesome. Because it'll talk about a lot of the places that are on the beach, specific strong points. And that's a good way to find out, hey, I know something happened very specifically at this location. Is it important enough for me to put in the game? And if the answer is yes, then you make some accommodation or design element to do that. You know, and so the reading is important. You know, and I try to impart some military ease, I guess, 
uh, to people in my games. That's why they're written, the, the rules are written in those battlefield operating systems. And the book's no different. I go in there and when I see stuff that talks about artillery supporting, you know, the troops or naval gunfire, I say, okay, how does that fit in my battlefield operating systems in my rules? Where do I need to put that? How do I put that in context so that people can understand that that's where it fits in terms of the military planning process? So what about, um, what about games? Do you get a chance to play anything other than your play tests? Okay, so the answer is no. <laughs> and um, I do have an affinity towards Labatai games. And, and I love the fact that the old martial guys have come back from the dead and put out, you know, yearly releases. And, and those interest me from a, a what's going on in their world perspective, okay? And I just love the Napoleonic era. And so my Incredible Courage series reflects a lot of that. But... Um, in terms of actually playing those things, the answer is I have little time to do any of that. And so I play mostly my own stuff, you know, mostly play testing in advance for, for that, you know, those things. Yeah. My closet is virtually empty. You know, everyone has a, a space dedicated towards a game collection or something. And I had two closets full worth of things stuff and sold them all first it was for a computer to support my computer game that i was developing and the second time for the initial investment in my paper and cardboard part, part of the company yeah and see whatever is most important to you at the time is going to be the thing that you worry about the games became having them in the closet became not as important yeah agreed Agreed. Agreed. I, I, uh, I struggle, but I fight to play games, uh, so that I'm not prototyping all the time, uh, only because I find that it helps me shake loose, um, a newer, a different mechanism. If it, yeah. you know, and that's the, to me, the useful part. I've got uh, somebody who bounces that off of me all the time and says, you know, you should buy something that is not yours just to see what other people are thinking and how they are, you know, considering design pieces for certain elements. Right. Yeah. And one of the great things uh, now is that rules are electronically available. So, right. So, you know, even, even euros that are hot, I try to grab the rules and read through and think through. And, and even, mine I make, or at least mostly try to make available on the ConSim World site, you know. So if somebody wants to go look at them before purchasing something or, you know, they don't have to worry about buying the game in order to do that. Right, Absolutely. So one last quick question. Mm -hmm. How far did you guys get last year on, uh, on, on the, the giant Kursk? <laughs> so we got uh, one and a half battle days. So I think that's 15 turns. Out of? Out of, oh, I mean, my goal really was to finish one full battle day, 10 turns. That was my goal. And I set a stretch goal of two days, which would have been 20 turns. So we finished right in the middle of that. And I was very happy to, to, to say that we'd accomplished that. And it, there's no way we'll ever complete like one of those total complete 10-day uh, battles from the 4th until the 13th. You know, that, that was never my, my goal. But two days is, uh, is pretty good. And so on the core level ones that we had done previously, we had. We'd gotten 20 turns done in those years. And that was just... A blast. This one here, my my goal is really to finish just six June. That's all I want to do. If we get into seven June, I'll be really happy. But uh, six June will make me extremely excited. Yeah, that's great. Well, Chris, thank you for taking the time. It was uh, great to talk to you. And uh, you're a grognard's grognard, and you're feeding <laughs> feeding the grognards, which makes us all happy. So. I'm trying. So appreciate it, and thanks for taking the time to do the podcast. And, and thank you for asking. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a real honor. Thanks.
So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on Facebook and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to Golden Ring Ensemble for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Chris Fasulo. And that's it for me. As always, I'm working my way to the GMT weekend at the warehouse in Hanford, California, and I'll be back soon. Yes,